You're listening to the Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda, and I'm happy to be joined today by a longtime regular contributor to the Diplomat and uh, a familiar figure to some of you that have been listening to this podcast for a while. Um, I'm joined by Dr. Robert Farley. How's it going today, Rob? It is. Uh, it's going very well today. The, the weather in central Pennsylvania is actually, um, it's cold, but it's sunny. So it's actually, it's quite lovely. Yeah. So, you know, I've gotten used to you being a main time fixture for us in Kentucky, uh, but now you find yourself in Pennsylvania. So do you want to just tell all our listeners uh, what you're exactly up to in Pennsylvania these days? Yes, well, I mean, I still regard myself as the uh, diplomat's chief Kentucky correspondent, but I've also taken on a new hat. Um, so I am this year a visiting professor at the uh, United States Army War College in the um, uh, DNSS department, and I teach courses here to uh, colonels and lieutenant colonels um, from uh, 80 different countries, uh, most notably the United States, um, but also a variety of others. Uh, and part of the professional military education system here in the United States, and it's really been uh, quite eye-opening and a fascinating experience. That's great. Uh, so what? Uh, so what's the um, majority of your coursework um, focusing on right now? Um, military strategy or uh, international affairs more broadly? So the first course I taught was uh, called Theories of War and Strategy. Okay. Um, and, and here at the Army War College, we teach uh, sequentially. So essentially, you teach an entire course and then you move on to the next course. Um, and Theories of War and Strategy was great thinkers uh, down to uh, contemporary thinkers on grand strategy. So you read Thucydides, Klaus Fitz, Sunza. Um, and a bunch of others, Mahan. Um, and the current course that I'm teaching is called uh, National Security Policy and Strategy. Um, and it's a little bit similar to some courses I taught at uh, the University of Kentucky, um, but it's, it's more sophisticated in a lot of ways. And we're doing a deep dive into um, the international environment, uh, American procedures and processes for developing national values and national interests. Okay. Um, it's really very interesting. Very cool. Um, well, so... I'm really glad to have you on the show today uh, because both of us have been uh, tweeting and writing and blogging um, over the past few days about the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, uh, which had come up in the Asia hand context for a bit, but really kind of on the periphery of the Asia debate. And now it's kind of been thrust into the forefront because the Trump administration a few days ago, uh, President Trump announced that he would withdraw the United States from INF, and this appears to be sort of a brainchild of John Bolton, his national security advisor, who's famously uh, known for despising uh, arms control arrangements more broadly. Um, so for listeners that aren't familiar with the INF Treaty, it was signed in 1987 between Gorbachev and Reagan, and it was sort of a landmark of Cold War arms control, and it required both countries to not deploy, possess, or test um, ground-launched cruise and ballistic missiles with ranges between 500 kilometers and 5,500 kilometers. So that allowed both countries to retain onto their strategic missiles, the ICBMs that have ranges in excess of 5,500 um, kilometers and the shorter range systems below 500. But everything in the intermediate um, range category, so that included the Pershing and the ground launch cruise missiles that the United States had in Western Europe, all of that was dismantled and destroyed. And this applied indefinitely all over the world. And the conversation that's erupted in the past few days has been really interesting because uh, there's really three groups of people that have been talking about INF. Uh, you have sort of the European transatlantic security hands uh, that have been talking about the effect on European security, the failure to consult European allies. You've had the Asia hands, um, and I think Rob and I are sort of part of this group uh, who've been debating among themselves the options and benefits that open up for the United States now that its hands won't be tied, so to speak, by the INF restrictions and 
one of the concerns here has been that China, uh, formerly the People's Liberation Army's second artillery corps, now the rocket force, uh, possesses a ballistic and cruise missile arsenal where 95% of the inventory comprises of systems in that INF range prescribed limit. So China has a bunch of medium range systems, intermediate range systems, the DF-26, the DF-16, the uh, DF-21 and its variants, including the DF-21D, all that fall in this INF prescribed range. And a lot of this has left the United States sort of feeling like the there is a serious asymmetry there in capabilities. And the third set of people that I've been talking about INF um, are the uh, arms control uh, analysts. Uh, and obviously, uh, these groups have sort of varying perspectives. Um, I think broadly, it's fair to say that everybody agrees that the failure to consult allies was not a great call. But the broader debate I think that's now shaping up is, um, in my view, are the benefits that come from INF withdrawal simply more in tune with 21st century realities and where we find ourselves in now in 2018 with China, particularly as competition appears to be the word of the day um, when it comes to the U.S.-China relationship. Um, so, Rob, I know that um, I'm going to spoil things for our listeners here a bit and suggest that I think you and I have sort of differing perspectives on this. I'm hoping that we'll have a nice debate. Um, so why don't I let you sort of make the more... I guess not, I don't want to call you a pro-INF withdrawal person. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, you seem to be a lot more sympathetic to the uh, idea that the options that now open up for the United States are a good thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, first let me premise, uh, and this goes back to the first part of the conversation, um, that nothing I'm about to say, um, uh, is everything about, about to say is a personal view and it's not necessarily shared by the department of the army, the army war college, the department of defense, the U S government, university of Kentucky, or anyone else who might employ me at any time now or in the future. Okay, and we can put a note in the <laughs> podcast notes about that, so that will be straight up front. Right, right, right. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, I think it's fair to characterize me, and I, I, I'm a newcomer, um, and I think I'm sort of idiosyncratic within the, the pro-INF withdrawal crowd, because um, normally I'm, I find myself quite comfortably within the arms control, uh, the arms control group of people. Um, I'm not really the transatlanticist, but... Um, yeah, I mean, for me, sort of looking at this issue in more depth, which I've done, there's been a lot of literature on this um, uh, from some really smart people. And the more that I read about it, the more I, I, I sort of really came to the conclusion that the INF, um, while being sort of an extraordinarily important component of the peaceful drawdown of the Cold War in Europe, was also... Um, an arms control agreement that was so contextual to the late Cold War um, that uh, it's very it's very difficult to um, continue to usefully apply it in a uh, situation in which there were technological changes and there were fundamental structural changes um, to uh, international society. Mm. Um, and in particular, mm. you know what I'm thinking about here. Um, is the sort of the rise in the importance of China's conventional military. Um, so this was a treaty which was supposed to constrain both the United States and Russia, but constraining Russia is no longer that is no longer nearly as big of a deal as constraining China. Right? China's ability, its latent and actual military power, is considerably is substantially greater than that of Russia. And so effectively, you have a treaty that's prohibiting. Um, systems that does not prohibit one of the two largest um, uh, military powers in the world from building missiles, right? It only prohibits one of those countries from building missiles. Um, 
So the one thing that I left out at the introduction was that um, in recent years, since 2014, uh, the Obama administration um, made clear that Russia was violating INF. That's really important context here, and I should have mentioned that. So Russia has developed a missile known as the SSC-8. The NATO designator for that is actually pretty great. They call it the screwdriver, uh, which I think is really fitting for that missile. Uh, it's essentially an extended range version on land of the uh, 3M14 uh, caliber cruise missile that Russia used to strike targets in China and the like. Probably has a range of around 2,000 uh, kilometers. Um, but yeah, so Rob, to to uh, to just respond to you briefly, um, I think what you said is absolutely um, right. Um, but I think the observation that, you know, for me, it's a bit of an obvious kind of observation that the options that open up for the United States um, are apparent in the wake of the collapse of INF. Um, I think what I've noticed in just the past few days, just talking to people, you know, proponents, opponents, hard, hardcore arms control types about this issue is there is really a gap in how these three groups are talking to each other. The Asia hands are not too interested in the transatlantic effects and the effects in Western Europe. So from the European perspective, the challenge looks quite different, is that the the Chinese conventional challenge doesn't loom as largely over European states. But obviously in the United States, this has been a debate that's been going on uh, since the era of the rebalance. Uh, you, uh, you had the, um, the Andrew Krapnevich monograph on archipelagic defense, which saw a role for potential um, U.S. cruise missiles. Um, I think we should be clear about what most of the INF withdrawal proponents really talk about. And Rob, maybe here you can also specify if you fall into this category. But what I'm really hearing is people want a fairly modest capability to be explored as part of the U.S. arsenal in the Pacific, which is cruise missiles specifically. Uh, ballistic missiles might prove to be a little bit too destabilizing given the promptness with which they can strike Chinese targets. So people want cruise missiles with conventional payloads explicitly. I haven't really been hearing anybody talking about, you know, a Pershing 3 kind of deployment on uh, Okinawa or anything like that. But that's broadly the capability uh, that I understand most people are looking for. Uh, is that is that accurate? Yeah, no, I think that's, um, I mean, that's fundamentally what people are looking for. There, there is some interesting work. So, yeah, wh what I want, um, what I think the United States should be able to develop and should be able to deploy are ground-launched cruise missiles with conventional warheads that are broadly similar to the sort of ground-launched cruise missiles that the Chinese can um, deploy right now, right? And um, these can be deployed in ways uh, that um, offer a lot of different options for the United States. Uh, down the road in terms of, you know, as you suggest, archipelagic defense. Um, uh, but, you know, a variety of ways of striking targets in China, but not necessarily even targets in China, right? Also, um, targets that are at sea or targets that are in the South China Sea, and I understand there are basing issues. I appreciate that. Um, but, yeah, no, uh, ground-launched cruise missiles with conventional warheads is fundamentally um, what I'm interested in. Yeah. Got it. Um, so I'm glad you brought up the basing issues because that I found to be one of the arguments that I've yet to hear a convincing proponent uh, case for. Um, in particular, I think, um, so the, the territories that I've most commonly heard associated with potential INF range deployments in Asia are Japan, specifically uh, Japanese territories along the first island chain. So most prominently Okinawa, but potentially other island land masses in the area. Um, you also hear Northern Australia, although I think that has a bit of a problem in that it actually gets you further away from the targets you'd want to hold at risk than Guam would in Guam's U.S. territory, so you don't have to deal with sort of um, allied, um, allied management issues there. Uh, you also hear about the Philippines, potentially, um, and the Japanese, um, the main islands of Japan also do come up. Um, in all of these cases, I think there are serious 
domestic political constraints where I just can't imagine. Um, I think Japan is probably where you'd have the best chance to find a willing domestic constituency willing to stand up for American ground launch cruise missile deployments. The Philippines, uh, I think something would have to change quite dramatically in the country's domestic politics and its relationship with China. And Australia, too. I think Australia is maybe a little bit more of a complicated case. There is a pretty um, nuanced debate going on there about the role of its relationship with China and the United States. Uh, it's a U.S. ally. But again, I think I think the basing problem is actually quite serious. The, really, the only place that you end up that's a sure thing is Guam. Um, but when you're talking about Guam, you know, you already have a bomber presence there. You have B-1s that can deliver um, standoff air launch cruise missiles, uh, JASMs, JASM-ER, to hold many of these same targets at risk. Um, you have naval capabilities, although I think the costs per um, the cost to deploy those could be considerably higher. Um, one of the things I've heard, and I don't know what your thoughts on this are, are having some kind of, you know, cruise missile units based at Guam that can be forward deployed either in a crisis or on sort of reassurance tours, uh, very much like fighters might be forward based. I don't know if that would be something that kind of bridges this deployment gap. I'm still a little skeptical, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Right. I mean, I, I hadn't heard the forward deployed, uh, although I think that it makes great sense. Um, even if it's only Guam, right. And, and. Even though Guam is really small, and Guam can't reach, um, you know, even the longest range. Although we'll see, you know, one of the things the INF did, and uh, and and so a, a common criticism from the pro-INF people is that the United States doesn't have a lot of ready-made systems that it can deploy, um, sort of right off right off the bat, right when we're withdrawing from the system. Which I think sort of fundamentally misunderstands how government and development in the United States happens. Um, that services just don't invest in capabilities, and they don't push for capabilities that they think are going to be canceled anyway because of uh, running into uh, international law. Um, I think there are other existing systems that can be modified in ways. So, you know, the, the Army's prism, uh, precision strike missile came to 499 kilometers, right? Well, there's nothing special about 499 kilometers. And so that sort of thing can be, can be changed. But, you know, let's, let's say that it's just sort of the classic Lickham, the classic um, uh, Tomahawk missile, and it's just Guam. And we just have road mobile missiles in Guam. Um, that can't hold very much of China. Uh, in fact, it'll hold really a residue of China, notable, but it can contribute to sea control um, throughout the East China Sea and South um, And ground launched cruise missiles, especially if they're road mobile missiles, are different than bombers uh, insofar. And I think Mr. Reich made the point oh, well, the Chinese are already target Guam. Um, every inch of Guam with their own ballistic missiles. That's true, but that's much more of a problem for the U.S. bomber forces than it would be for a road mobile Glickham system. Right? Guam is small, 210 square miles, but you can still hide um, uh, road mobile cruise missiles in lots of places, even on a pretty small island. Um, and whereas uh, the Chinese could be almost assured of destroying air facilities in Guam by hitting Guam with lots and lots of conventional ballistic missiles. I think they would be much less assured of destroying the entirety of a ground-launched cruise missile system, especially if they were dispersed around the island, and especially if they're mobile. Mm -hmm. So one is, I think Guam's enough. Right, so I, I think Guam alone is enough, but you know, the restrictions, diplomatic and political restrictions, that make it difficult to envision deploying these systems in places like Japan and places like the Philippines, um, I think are a lot more plastic than people are willing to acknowledge. Um, the, the Japanese willingness to host these kinds of systems is based pretty fundamentally on Japan's 
concern about China, right? The more concerned Japan is about China and Chinese behavior, the more willing they're going to be allowed. They are going to be to allow these kinds of systems to be uh, stationed in militarily relevant places on their territory. And so, in some sense, that's sort of folded into the system. The more threatening that China acts, the more we'll need Glickums, and the more willing that Japan will be to allow us to deploy Glickums. Mm-hmm. Um, the same thing, the same story with the Philippines. You know, right now, um, uh, U.S.-Philippine relations aren't awesome, and uh, Chinese-Philippine relations um, are are much better. But that wasn't the case ten years ago, and there's absolutely no indication or no guarantee that it'll be the case in five or ten years from now. Um, but you know, if we have the ability to then move um, Glickums to a now friendly Philippine government, one that is concerned about China, it would be great to have that capability rather than not be able to have it at all. That's right. I mean, yeah, so those arguments, you know, about the plasticity of sort of domestic political conditions in these countries, I think that's well taken. Um, The other issue, you know, that comes up from time to time in the INF debate, and at least had come up in around 2015, 2016, when we were debating, you know, the archipelagic defense concept altogether was to enable Japan to develop an indigenous capability, right? The debate about constitutional reform and Japan potentially pursuing its own offensive systems. None of that is restricted by INF. Japan could have pursued some kind of um, broader armament plan, and there is interest in Japan to, I think, pursue those ind- indigenous capabilities um, over kind of the political nightmare that it might be domestically to have sort of road mobile U.S. missiles kind of conducting patrols and driving around. Um, the survivability point, I think, is very well taken. Uh, the only thing that I bring up in, in response to that is, you know, if we think about the trade-offs and sort of the per unit costs of sort of developing and procuring these new ground launch cruise missiles, uh, you'd need something that's um, in a different class than the Tomahawk. Uh, I actually did map this out, I think, for to hold kind of all targets of interest in China at risk from Guam, you'd need systems in the range of about 3,000 kilometers gets you to the coast, to about Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And then you need to go up to about 8,000, which takes you into ICBM range anyways. So you're going to need some pretty long range cruise missile systems, which means this is going to be something um, altogether new that doesn't really exist right now uh, if we're talking about developing something. The kind of things that you could kind of put together in a quick and dirty form, I think maybe even by the early 2020s would be something like you know, Mark 41 VLSs on land, kind of the the right. thing that actually Russia worried about in Western Europe, right, with uh, the European right. uh, phased area approach um, missile defense systems. Uh, they worried that we could convert them into offensive systems. And yeah, that's actually quite feasible. We just didn't do that. Uh, so hey, that could can happen. Can I pause you on that? Can I yeah. pause you on that? Because I have a question associated with that. Um, so I, I noticed that you haven't, and nobody's really talked about, um, what are the situation in South Korea, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I know South Korea does not want to mess with China uh, in fashion and South Korea right now doesn't really want to mess with North Korea. But South Korea, I mean, some of, especially because South Korea has accepted uh, ABM systems, Mm -hmm. um, what sort of prospect there is there for the stationing of offensive offensive glickums? Well, so the South Koreans have their own indigenous cruise missiles, the Hyunmus. They haven't been looking for American uh, deployments um, to deliver a similar capability. And explicitly right now, the way the alliance exists. So this is actually an interesting point because, uh, yeah, we should take the Korean Peninsula debate into account. If the uh-huh. alliance with South Korea is sort of fundamentally reconceived as sort of even some South Korean progressives are have been making this point, right? If we have a peace treaty with North Korea, the raison d'etre of the alliance changes from deterring North Korea to being just part of the the broader U.S. network in East Asia to deter China and to uh, maintain a regional security architecture. Fine. If that happens under those circumstances, I think South Korea could be a potential basing location. Although, again, there, I think 
you would really need a a very serious change in the domestic political constraints. Uh, even, you know, in the same conversation where I've had this with kind of left or even center left folks in South Korea about rethinking the alliance, uh, you know, in one breath, they'll talk they'll tell you this. And then the next breath, they'll say, well, we're also fundamentally rethinking the role of uh, our relationship with China uh, kind of going forward in the next few decades. So it's hard for me to really imagine South Korea as a candidate. I think Japan, you're a lot more safer in the sort of general right. domestic political consensus about there being a threat from China. Uh, I think in South Korea, it's, uh, it's, it's far more nebulous in my view. Right. Well, let me, let me also suggest, I'm also going to make, and, and, and uh, this is what I would call the um, sort of the net assessment case, right? Um, the net assessment case for Glickums. And in fact, um, this was sort of the central contribution that Glickums made in competition between the United States and Soviet Union way back when, right? Um, that fundamentally we should be thinking about this not in terms of, uh, you know, the specific capabilities that these systems uh, deliver, um, whether they're, in fact, whether they're stationed on Guam or whether they're stationed on um, in Japanese islands or even in South Korea. Those ones. Um, we should be thinking about these in terms of the problems that they create for Chinese defense planning, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in just sort of to drag this back to Guam and to drag this back to um, the question of whether the Chinese can attack uh, these kinds of missiles on Guam, it's certainly possible that they can, and it's certainly possible that they can even hit them. But they have to change their targeting policies and they have to change the throw weights, even of conventional munitions, that they're willing to hurl at a place like Guam simply because glycums might exist, right? And I think that also is going to be an impact on how China is going to think about its defense policy and think about sort of structuring its own missile forces and its own uh, air and naval forces when there's even the prospect of putting uh, potentially lethal glycum systems in on Japanese islands or on the Philippines or in South Korea, right? Um, you don't actually even need to deploy those systems to have China worried about that someday you might yeah, and that yeah. changes the way that China does its experiments. Changes the way that China does its facing, um, because they're not necessarily going to rely on Japan's decision not to deploy these systems, because they also understand that Philippines didn't make it, and South Korea didn't make it. Yeah, I think I, I think the procurement challenges and the targeting challenges will will arise. I mean, I think you know if I sort of th game through in my mind a Chinese reaction to a Glickum deployment, let's just say you know Guam, because we both agree that that's the most likely at least initial point of deployment. I mean, I can I can very easily see the Chinese also, um, you know, they're augmenting their own damage limitation capabilities, their own um, homeland missile defense systems for uh, shorter range systems to uh, deal with that problem. You know, one of the one of the more creative proposals that I haven't really seen discussed is something like. Um, Using um, using the army's new extended range attackums uh, systems based right. on something like landing helicopter docks, um, potentially even carriers, um, mobile at sea. You're using a ground launch system simply at sea on a sea based platform, which um, you know sort of gets you some of the same challenges associated with uh, naval deployments in terms of cost, certainly, um, mm -hmm. but does help sort of bridge that gap. The other thing is. Um, I think one of the more interesting arguments that I've heard from the proponent side is that given the problems with sort of sea-based systems, especially things like the Virginia class and Virginia payload module, uh, the development of those systems and potential delays there, um, it might be prudent to sort of hedge our bets by looking into a Glickum deployment. I'm not sure that, you know, that necessarily again, convinces me because I think I can imagine a lot of problems coming up with the deployment of a Glickum. Um, you know, we also have to be open to the fact that, uh, you know, 
post midterms. Who knows if we even can appropriate funds right. for a new kind right. of system like this? But yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these arguments, I think, uh, you know, really get at the core issue. But you know, Rob, I do want to ask you, sort of zooming out um, from this conversation, right? So, so we've just kind of done the thing where you know we're two Asia hands talking about the nitty gritty of deployments, ranges, procurement, targeting. Um, zooming out, though, you know, you you get to you get back to that problem of the transatlantic relationship, um, where all of what we just said, I think, will be very unconvincing to Western European allies, and I think that's a consideration that we ought to care about, and I think more Asia hands should be attuned to those considerations. Um, so what is kind of the final point that you'd sort of use to kind of sell this idea? Right. Of well, throwing? Um, I mean, I, I'm going to be kind of glib on this and uh, Go I'm going to be glib because my answer isn't great um, because the ship has already sailed. Um, but my response to sort of this notion that, uh, I mean, look, the Trump administration did this really, really badly, right? It does everything badly, right? It's just not good at things and especially diplomatic things. Um, but, my answer is that this is an object lesson. The situation with the INF is an object lesson on why you don't needlessly antagonize your allies, right? Why you don't go over there and yell at them continually and talk about uh, how uh, they're free riders and everything else, and don't break agreements with them that you don't need break, right? You antagonize your allies when you have to antagonize your allies, when it's a good idea to antagonize your allies, but not for uh, what is basically domestic political... Um, a domestic political uh, gain, right? I mean, the Europeans are, I think, rightly going to be agitated by this, right? And and it's legitimate for them to be agitated by this. Um, and it would be better if we hadn't been agitating them for the last two years about things that they didn't need to be agitated about, right? So this is, you know, this is why alliance maintenance is important because sometimes you have to do things that your allies um, aren't really going to be terribly happy about. And it's easier to do those things when the relationship is otherwise healthy, right? So keep that relation in the future, try to keep those relationships healthy rather than uh, sort of intentionally damage them because you might have to do something in the future that's that's gonna damage that for other reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so two small comments on that and then we'll wrap up the discussion. I mean, one uh, that I've heard from uh, some of the more transatlantic focused an analysts in recent days was that the Europeans, um, the Europeans didn't take the issue of Russian com um, compliance with INF as seriously as they should have and didn't make enough noise about it. And that's part of the reason that we find ourselves in the circumstances that we are, we find ourselves in today. And, you know, maybe that was something that should have happened in the final years of the Obama administration that could have led to more publicization, more, more pressure on the Russians to actually have a serious conversation about compliance. So that's one. The second issue um, relates to, you know, the legacy of the discussion over INF in China, which I think is interesting. And we sort of find the United States and Russia out of phase. In 2007, uh, so Bob Gates talks about this in his memoirs, uh, the Russians threatened to leave INF because they worry about the Second Artillery Corps. And they say, look, China's on our doorstep and they have all of these missiles and we can't do anything to counter them because of sort of INF tying our hands, right? And then um, obviously a few years later, after uh, Crimea and the broader collapse in the relationship, we, we start seeing the uh, SSC-8 turn into a serious system and deployed in Western Europe. So the question now is, you know, are the Russians sort of also concerned about China? And I think that concern hasn't really evaporated, even though, you know, everybody's been kind of freaking out with things like Vostok 2018. I think those anxieties in Russia are still very much present about China. Um, and the thing is, you know, Trump 
said yesterday, I mean, again, nothing that Trump says necessarily tells us anything about his his true beliefs or his administration's sort of approach to things. But he said that China yeah. should be part of INF, right? And that's that's sort of long time, you know, just been a non-starter and nobody's taken that seriously. China is nowhere near parity with the United States or Russia when it comes to its nuclear arsenal. So it kind of uses its massive conventional superiority to offset some of those disadvantages. And we don't want to encourage China to pursue a nuclear arms race and come up to parity with the United States. But it's interesting that it took basically 11 years for Russia to make the point that, look, INF is tying our hands with China. And then 11 years later, this is sort of being used as one of the major motivations to finally withdraw from the agreement. So that I just think is an important bit of kind of historical perspective to just keep in mind here. Um, so Rob, uh, you're the guest on the podcast. So I do want to give you the last word uh, in this in this conversation about INF. Um, my last word is just going to be a response to you previous. I mean, it doesn't seem to me that the Russians are really all that concerned um, about the abrogation of INF. They're, they're not that. They're, I don't think they are irritated about the end of INF in the same way that they were irritated about the end of the ABM treaty, right? They would not have treated it so cavalierly um, if they had really been worried about it, right? But what they have successfully done here is make the United States look like the bad guy for ending a treaty that they were cheating on. Um, and that's, you know, that's really quite well done. Um, but my, I guess my other, and my, my, my second last word would be this, that I think the arms control community, and I'm, I've made this point on Twitter and other places, the arms control community really needs to break out of its Atlantic and especially its Russia focus. I think that the community has really sort of struggled um, to think very successfully about the rise of Chinese military power. Um, and in part, that's because that rise has been fundamentally conventional and the arms control community is laser focused on nuclear issues and has been focused on nuclear issues for a long time. Um, Russia is simply not a major conventional threat to the United States. And China is a major conventional threat to the United States. Um, and so we need to be thinking about arms control in more creative ways than simply defending every treaty that was made in the 1980s because you're worried about the neocons tearing it down um so we, we need to rethink how we do arms control and how we defend arms control yeah well that's a that's the call you know that's a call to arms that i can get behind um i think i think there right. needs to be more creative thinking about um the challenges posed by china uh, i mean the conventional th uh, you know the conventional challenge posed by china isn't a threat necessarily to the united states it's a it's a threat to u.s interests in the asia pacific in the i guess indo-pacific as we're calling it these days um but right. but i think that's important it's a, it's a serious challenge um and i think the really interesting question you know if, if there's one thing that i took away from this discussion with you is this discussion about the plasticity of sort of allied and partner preferences and sort of observing how those are going to change with time i think we're at a very interesting point right now uh, where we are sort of seeing countries uh you know take note of the fact that america first might not mean that they can necessarily uh, you know, quote unquote, free ride on U.S. security assurances. And maybe they'll, um, you know, maybe we'll start seeing the China challenge push countries like even, you know, partner countries like Vietnam and India to potentially think more creatively about these kinds of uh, issues that we've talked about here today. And and yeah, I mean, we'll have to we'll have to really um, I mean, there will have to be a hard conversation with many of the allied states if this does go forward and there are Glickham deployments in Asia again. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think that was probably one of the one of the areas that uh, I found most interesting. So uh, anyways, uh, Rob, thanks a lot for joining me. This was really a fun discussion, and I hope uh, this kind of kicks off a broader debate uh, between the kind of three sets of people I described at the beginning. I think, uh, you know, this is something that I would love to see a lot more kind of writing and thinking on, too. So uh, if you've got something else to say, definitely right. you know where to find me. All right. Thanks so much, Ankit, for having me. Absolutely.
Uh, for our listeners, if you uh, liked what you heard on the podcast and you haven't yet subscribed, make sure you go ahead and do that. And if you have been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't left us a review, go ahead and do that as well. Really helps get the word out about the show. And you can do that on either iTunes or Google Play. So thanks a lot for listening. And I'll be back next week with more.